All right, church. Well, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Keith uh, introduced that we were going to be walking into a new series in First Peter. And I believe the Lord has given me the theme for this series called Faith Under Fire. And if you are familiar at all with First Peter, you're going to know a little bit why it would be called that. It is about believers who are under the fiery trials. And, and that, that word fire has a double meaning. It is the fire of trials, and it is the same fire that God uses to purify us and to sanctify us. So I hope you guys are excited as I am to walk through this series with you in First Peter. Uh, just prayerfully considering what the Lord would have, there is so much in here that I think would benefit us in this season. And, and Pastor Keith walked us through the end of chapter 4 and beginning of uh, chapter 5 where it talks about us not being surprised by the fiery trials that come. We shouldn't be. And if you've been alive for any amount of time, you'd be aware that trials come all the time. We are inundated on a daily basis with trials, and, and not just the politics of the day or the cultural rhetoric. It's in the home. It's where you are. It's the stuff that you deal with on a daily basis, the emotions and thoughts that you battle with. Those are still the same trials, and they meet you where you are. Some of these are unseen or unheard by most people, but you are acquainted with them. They're more than the mandates, and they're more than the constant memes. They are in the home. And so the good news about this is today it's not a word of correction, but a word of encouragement. Because that is precisely what the Holy Spirit does through the Apostle Peter in this text in First Peter. is He gives a word of encouragement for the believers who are to suffer. I just recently went to Orlando to go to my dad's wedding. Funny story. Um, we'll talk about that some other time. But we walked into, on our way, we walked into a, a coffee shop, and I saw this uh, billboard up um, in the coffee shop. I won't tell you what coffee shop it is, but it rhymes with uh, Tarlux. Um, and so what it is, is it's just to help someone smile. And so everyone's able to take a post-it note and try to put it up there to encourage people and wow the plethora of good things to hear. You are amazing, whoever you are. You are amazing. Um, I love this one. You are loved, a latte. <laughs> Just perfect. You are great. Like your deeds mean something. Your sheer existence is a gift to the world. And I hope that these do encourage people. Some of them are very strange. But I hope it's, that they do encourage people. But would that encourage you when you're in the fire? Would that meet you when you are under it and you are burdened by it? The good news from our text today in 1 Peter is that God gives us a unique encouragement for us in our darkest hour that informs not only how we think about it, but how we walk through that trial. So if you join me in turning in your Bibles, opening God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. And we are going to be beginning in verse 1. If you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. No matter what people say, no matter what encouragement you get from coffee shops, this is the word of God. So let's hear what he has to say. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Lord, what a glorious reality that you have accomplished for us. That you have called us to yourself and that you have acquired by the work of your son an inheritance for us. Lord, let us see this. Let us see what you have done so that when the trials come, we might be informed by what you have already done for us and what you do for us in the midst of the fire. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love this passage in First Peter and how his aim is not to just warn the saints of the impending suffering, but to encourage them in it. It is a, a glorious reality. The Holy Spirit is speaking through the Apostle Peter to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, in an effort to encourage them with what they are about to endure. And this is just so helpful. We get a little crash course in what it means to suffer and be under trial. And here's just an encouragement for us. We need to be careful and be guarded for, for all the suffering that we endure. Your suffering is real and your suffering matters. But we need to be careful about comparing it to other things. Because what we see here in this church is a church that suffered severely. And we can fall into temptation if we overestimate ours. We can fall into temptation of overestimating our suffering and therefore underestimating God's grace. So we need to be focused on the realities of what we are encountering and how God's grace is working in and through it. What we find here in this church in the first century is a church that is inundated with suffering. Most scholars believe that First Peter was written between 62 and 63 AD, just prior to the fire in Rome. And if you guys didn't know, this was during the reign of Nero. Not exactly the happiest guy. Yeah, not at all, actually. And if you guys know anything about your history, when the fire of Rome happens, Nero went and blamed the Christians for it. He would go outwardly persecute them. And this is what awaits them. They are being ostracized. They are outcast the rolling, from the rolling of the eyes to physical abuse. That is what they are inundated with here. And what awaits them continues through the reign of Domitian and Trajan. It only gets worse for these people. So it is helpful to see what God says to these and how it rings true for us in 2021. It's glorious for us. And what he does for us 
in writing to the scattered believers throughout Asia Minor is an effort to remind them who they are in Christ and the hope that they have in him, a hope that is living and active. And he begins to unfold God's plan for us as being exiles in this land. And church, the plan is glorious and it is praiseworthy. Although it might not sound that way, someone comes up and says, hey, you're going to suffer a lot, but don't worry, the plan is good. (laughs) You might not exactly believe that or agree with that, but the plan is most definitely praiseworthy. Why? Because in this text, we don't have to wait to the end of the story to hear the good news. We don't have to wait till the suffering ceases before we can rejoice. We see it in the preface. The preface to the fire is glorious. Unlike most stories, we don't have to wait to the end to hear the climax. In 1 Peter, we see it in the very preface. In Peter's introductory salutation to the church, we are reminded of the glorious realities of our redemption and hope before we ever get to the trials and tribulations. It is set from the beginning to inform us prior to it happening. And I don't know about you, but normally I prefer to hear the bad news first. Casey has good news and bad news. I'm like, girl, just tell me the bad news now. Get out of the way. (laughs) Hurry up. And then hopefully the good news will kind of like ease that a little bit. But in this, hearing the good news first serves us massively. Why does it do that? Well, it serves us significantly in setting the trajectory of our time on earth and informs every adversity that we will face here. If you don't know the outcome, you can fall into despair pretty quickly, right? But if you know the outcome, if you know what Christ has accomplished for us, that should inform us and give us hope in the midst of the fire. And that's what the Holy Spirit does here in this text. He causes us to rejoice because of what he's done. And he reminds us who we are. We are elect exiles. I imagine if you were to hear that name, it really might not do a whole lot for you. We were to say, hello, elect exiles. Thanks. Can I have a better name? Like Hawkeye? Something cool, like hyper-masculine? Exiles don't really do a whole lot for me. But what's written here is so beautiful. The apostles viewed the word elect with sweet affection. The apostle who writes to us is one who is pictured of being taken out as a fisherman, called out, brought into fellowship with Jesus, and called to live a specific way. And in that same picture, that's what he's doing for us. We are elect. And we see this theme of exiles that is pervasive throughout the Bible, right? And it's been there since the fall. Adam and Eve sinned, and they are cast out of the garden, and they wander as sojourners in the land. And good old father Abraham, right? He is taken out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he is sent to where the Lord is calling him to be. And we know the story of Moses and the Israelites as they wander in their exiles in the land. And that is the same thing that God has done for those and beats us in our time. Look at Hebrews 11.13. It says, These all died in faith, those Old Testament saints, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the land. That's what they were called to be. And that calling meets us here in our text in 1 Peter. When it says to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And it meets us here in Covington in 2021. We are elect exiles in this land. Which should have a massive informing 
ability in us. If I were to greet you this morning, as I said before, good morning, exiles. You probably would look at me strange and be like, whoa, different church, thought it was, and you'd probably just exit immediately. But what it should do, it should create something in us. It should hit differently for us. What does it mean? Well, we see what it means in verse two. After he says to the elect exiles, what does it mean to be elect exiles? It means that you are foreknown by God. That God, before time, chose you, ordained you. Before you were in your mother's womb, he knew you. It means that you are being sanctified in the Spirit, that you are sanctified and being sanctified in the Spirit. It means that Christ's work on the cross has justified you, not only to appease God's wrath and appease the, the guilt of our sin, but to cause us to walk in obedience. That's what it means. And so when you hear elect exile, that should, that should like cause you to want to shout, yes, that's me. I want to be in that number. That's the number I want to be in. That's what it means for us as believers. So when he says that, it's not a derogatory term. It is a glorious term for us to be associated with us. God is faithful to remind us of that. He has called us out from who you were to be elect exiles in the land to which you live. And he addresses this later on in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he writes, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. How many of you can attest to that? Where God, where you were living life and God rescued you out of that sin and saved you and brought him into fellowship with him and you no longer do what you once do or once did. That, that's, that's all of our stories. And for the people here in the first century, that's what they're experiencing. These Christians who are scattered out in the dispersion are following Christ and the people that they once ran with were like, yo, what are you doing? We used to do this all the time. Apparently their friends were from New York. I don't know what that came from. <laughs> Right? They're like, like, we used to do this all the time. What are you doing? And they're just like, no, man, that's, that's not me anymore. And it doesn't stop there. It's not just a questioning, come on, man, don't you want to do what you used to do? No, it's, I remember who you were. I remember what you did. So it's just not a reminding of that. It's, it's maligning. It is talking back. It is downcasting towards them. It is, it is what they experienced. And, and you feel that too, don't you? With family members that are not believers or friends that you've tried to witness to. In the world that we live in, when it seems like we get a little bit more nervous with each new mandate that comes out, is it going to infringe on our certain inalienable rights, especially as believers? And it's probably coming, but we're, we're acquainted with this. We are acquainted with this reality of what Christ has done for us and called us to be elect exiles and experiencing what that means to be exiles in a land where people malign us. And so... As I said before, this first century church is greeted with being outcast. They have eyes rolled at them. They are not appreciated. There is physical abuse. There is verbal abuse. And all the while, God is faithful to remind them who they are, who they are in him. And I love at the end of, of verse 2 where it, where it gives the commendation, the prayer for us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Like that's our Savior's heart to us. That grace and peace would be multiplied to us. That not just, here, grace and peace, but it'd be overflowing to us. Over and again, that we would experience God's grace and peace. And the same Spirit who calls the Apostle Peter to pray this prayer over us is the same Spirit who provides it for us. And is faithful to give it to us and supply it always. But life doesn't always feel like this, does it, church? Life doesn't always feel peachy keen in light that we are elect exiles. The, the soundtrack of our life doesn't always seem like a catchy one. It doesn't seem like a crooner song, right? Where you got the world on a string and you're just sitting on a rainbow. It doesn't always seem that way. As a matter of fact, if your, the soundtrack of your life sounds probably a little bit more like a country song, right? Hey, man, there's a heartbreak going on. My wife left, lost my job. Hey, the dog's dead. Hey, okay, everything's wrong. Like, that's what life feels like, doesn't it? You laugh, but that's the reality. That is what it feels like. And the slightest thing that comes along to trip us up and to give a little trial, we feel like the walls are caving in, right? Like that picture of Star Wars, A New Hope, the original ones, only ones that matter, okay? And they fall in the trash chute, and that tra- the compactor starts to compress. There's no way out. The slightest thing just makes it feel like the walls are caving in, and the trials are bigger and bigger and bigger. God promises grace and peace to be multiplied to us in the midst of this. So regardless of how we feel about the fiery trials we experience, here's the reality, church. The God who calls us to himself and lavishes all the blessings of sonship has designed suffering to play a strategic role in our salvation. Suffering is necessary. There is a necessity to the fire. And we see that in verse 6 through 7, where it says, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, who's saying that it's necessary? Who is necessitating this? Well, God is. says it in 1 Peter 4.19, where we read, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The the Bible is not fake when it speaks about grief and life and the suffering that we endure. But the Bible also reminds us that God is necessitating these sufferings and these trials for a purpose. He is in them. He is using them for our good. And what a glorious reality it is, church, to be reminded that the, the God who uses the fire to try us also uses it to sanctify us. He uses it for our good. In him. When I was in the fire academy, we had to learn all about fire. And I was just like, why? We were supposed to put it out. But it really does, does help. And, and Darren would be able to speak more to this. So when you learn about the fire tetrahedron and what, it, what, what elements are needed for a fire, you learn about the, the main three, which is heat, fuel, and oxygen. And I just love that because it really does picture the Trinity at work in the fire. The radiant heat of God's love. Christ's finished work as as the fuel and the Holy Spirit's breath in the fire. All creating this fire needed for us to be conformed into his image. It is a beautiful picture of what Christ does through the testing of our faith. And all of these reasons we are able to rejoice in the midst of the fire because God is using it to purify us and to sanctify us. But it doesn't always feel good. But the crazy reality is that we are able to, at the same time, we are rejoicing, we, we are grieving. 
Grieving and rejoicing here in this text are simultaneous. They are taking place at the same time, which we see here in verse 6. When it says, in this you rejoice, though for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Although you're grieving, you have ample reason to rejoice in the grieving, which is so countercultural. But it is what even the, Paul, uh, excuse me, the Apostle Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians 6, when he says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If you've ever seen like an EKG, right, with a PQRS wave, it's like you're sorrowful, but you're always rejoicing. In the midst of that flat line of grieving, you are always rejoicing because of what he's done. How can that be? How can it be that we go through trials and tribulations and sorrow, and yet we can still rejoice all the more? Because all those sorrows come and they go, we, we can always rejoice based upon the fact that our rejoicing is rooted in the God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope and has obtained an inheritance for us. That's why we are born to a living hope church and Christ has accomplished the inheritance for us. That is why the passage goes immediately into doxology after the salutation. Peter introductory, and then goes immediately into praise where it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is worship and adoration to the God who is. There's praise being declared here, and rightfully so, because he knows what he's done. He knows the accomplished work that Christ has done for us. And we feel that. We on earth know what that's like. When you hear stories about the Mahonies when Riley drowned and they hoped and hoped that the Lord would rescue them or the Massons when they were praying for Joel that the Lord would sustain the baby and keep the baby and grow the baby. What happened when God worked a miracle and saved both of those babies? Blessed be the God, the Lord, Father. That's what happens. And it's in the same way. We know the outcome. So we too say, blessed be God, Father, Lord Jesus Christ. You have done a great work that you've already done. It's not a hope that it might happen. It's already acquired for us, church. Already done by Christ. He's so good to us. But, but if we miss the glory that is found in verse 3 through 5, if we miss that and it doesn't invoke praise in our heart now, What God promises in the fire won't mean anything to you. So we have to see what has already been accomplished and granted to us before we enter the fire. I love this picture that it says, not just praise or blessed be God, but it says God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that picture of Father. The Father who has planned out a glorious inheritance for his son is the same God who has done the same for us. My daughter turns eight on Saturday. Too soon. Uh, so I'm kind of wigging out about that. But we have plans for her. We have a party for her. And sure, I might give her a hint on what to expect, but I want to wait until that time before she can experience it all. And it's the same way with us. God has accomplished and acquired an inheritance for us that is kept for us, that awaits for us. And it is a sure hope that we can anticipate with all the joy that you would with an eight-year-old birthday party. And so, 
what I love that he does here is not only does he remind us of who we are and, and the realities of what we will experience in the midst of the fire, he tells us a little bit more about why we experience that fire. He tells us about the purpose of why we undergo these various trials. And church, when you read this, you've got to see the purpose is worth it. The promise that he gives in verse 7 through 9 is worth going through the trial. What does it say? The testing of your faith might produce what? It might lead to what? To the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and honor from our God in heaven. To be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, isn't that enough? It should be. The glory, the glory that we will experience of being in Jesus' presence should be enough. And we need to be aware that glory comes, but not before suffering. Suffering always precedes the glory. We see this in our text further on in verse 11 when it says, when he predicted, they're talking about the prophets here, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Suffering of Christ and then the subsequent glories. And so God has called us to walk through suffering and then glory. It doesn't even escape Jesus himself. He had to bear sufferings for us and then glory at the right hand of the Father. And we walk in that as partakers with Jesus. We walk in the same we walk in sufferings and then glory. And we see that in the great eight of Romans 8 when it says, heirs, if you're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided you suffer with him in order that you might be glorified with him. We must suffer so that we might be glorified with him. And it always precedes the suffering. And so what God promises in the praise and the glory and the honor and our joy should be not only an encouragement for us, but motivation for enduring well in the midst of the fiery trials that come. But he doesn't just leave it there, church. He doesn't just say, hey, you're going to suffer a lot. And then, hey, by the way, don't worry. There's a purpose behind it that's going to be fruitful. No, he says, church, let me tell you a little bit about the promises I have for you in the midst of it. Let me tell you about what awaits you at the end and then what awaits you now in time that can serve you in a mighty way. The promises of God are certain and glorious for us. We see this in verse 3 through 5, where God says that he has called us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that is alive and durable, a hope that is alive because the God who has accomplished it is alive and living forevermore. Born again to a living hope. Church, hope can be subjective, right? I really hope that LSU wins the game, right? Sure. Like, that's going to happen, right? Could be subjective. But the object of our hope is objective. It is certain and sure. He has accomplished. He has accomplished an inheritance for us that is done, completed, and finished, waiting for us, and is kept by God. And he hasn't just caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has given us an inheritance that is reserved by him. I just want to encourage you. This isn't just like an inheritance that you're waiting for maybe a relative. Maybe you're hoping kind of croak soon so you can have that inheritance. And then you get, you, I've heard several stories of people receiving that and then it just gets super depleted real quick. This inheritance is imperishable. It doesn't go away. God writes about this in this text where it says, 
the inheritance that is unperishable, what awaits for us in our inheritance will not end, church. It is kept for us. Just as he who brought us into fellowship and grafted us into inheritance keeps it, he will never cease to be, and your inheritance will never cease to be. And not only that, your inheritance is undefiled. No sin or misery contain it or tarnish it. Nothing you've done will ever tarnish your inheritance, ever. It is kept by God, purchased by the Son's blood, and so therefore it will never be undefiled. And it will never fade. I don't know why, but I just, I just love this reality that it will never fade. It will never lose its beauty or ecstasy. It will never lose its euphoria. Which I know is difficult to imagine. I mean, we live in a society that teaches us to become easily bored with what we just thought was awesome. And we know that from the songs that we put on repeat over and over again. And then two weeks you're like, don't ever want to hear that again. That was enough. Or that thing on Amazon that we just had to get and we got it and we haven't used it yet. Right? Like, this stuff happens all the time, but what God says is your inheritance is unfading. It will never cease to be glorious. You will never cease to be in awe of it. It doesn't fade. I love that. And church, not only do we have an inheritance that is kept by God, we ourselves are kept by him. Even in the fire, you and me are kept by the God who is good and who rescues us. And it is so important to see the connection between the God who keeps us in the fire and the God who keeps our inheritance reserved for us. We've got to see both. And John Calvin points to this and says, you guys need to see the connection between this because if you don't, you will undoubtedly fall into this statement where it says, What does it avail us that our salvation is laid up in heaven when we are tossed here and there in this world in a turbulent sea? What can it avail us that our salvation is secured in a quiet harbor when we are driven to and fro amidst thousand shipwrecks? And so that's our reality. We experience that. We feel that. What What does it mean you got some kind of inheritance for me in heaven? With you. What does that do for me right now when I feel like I'm being tossed to and fro? Like I'm getting... Round 15, boxed all in the face. What does it do for me? We need to see the connection that not only has he reserved our inheritance for us, he keeps us in the fire. He will not let us go, ever. He sustains us. We have to see that. We need to see it precisely because not only is our inheritance reserved in heaven, but also that he holds us fast now. He keeps us in the fire and he provides for us all that we need for every child that comes our way. Every ounce of mercy and grace and peace needed, he will supply it. He will not let you go. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, I will not lose. It's a promise. No matter what happens, he will not lose you. He will provide the grace and peace for every trial at the right time. I'm reminded of this beautiful story by Corrie ten Boom, many of you would be familiar with her, the Dutch woman. And she recited this story, uh, this conversation between her and her father when she was younger. And I just love this. She says in the story, she said, Daddy, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. 
or that our kids would <laughs> say that to us. And dad replied, tell me, when you take the train on a trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the ticket? Three weeks before? Corey responded, no, daddy. You give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. Her dad replied, that's right. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise father in heaven knows when we are going to need things too. Today you do not need the strength to be a martyr. But as soon as you are called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. And Corey took great comfort in her, in her father's words and his advice. For indeed, she found that God gave all the power and strength and grace and peace that she needed in the trial. For at age 52, she was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp for trying to save Jews. The trial of being in that circumstance, God preserved her and she experienced the God who keeps her even in the fire and holds her inheritance for her, waiting her. How glorious is that? And we can experience the same thing. Church, our hope is not in the alleviation of our trial, that God would soon make our trial just dissipate. No, our hope is in the resurrection of the one who suffered for us and purchased an inheritance that is kept for us and provides the spirit who sanctifies us in the midst of the fire. That's where our hope is. And if we don't see that glory, when the trial comes, we will be tossed to and fro. But if we see the God who keeps us in the midst of the fire, we can rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice in the grieving because we know that the outcome is sure. He will keep us. We will remain in him. And in the end, we have an inheritance waiting for us. Matt, you can come on up, man. Where are you at? I wanted to just take a few moments here because it's easy to hear some words from, from God's word and to just take them in and just be like, all right, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> and be ready to move on out. But I don't want to go too quickly from here because I think the Lord wants to do something in us this morning. So I imagine in a room this size that there are many people facing many trials. Some trials have been made public because of friends and family and some that have been keeping to yourself that you struggle with, that you need help with. And so what I want to do is I just want to take some time to pray. And so what I would invite you to do, if you are here and, and you are going through a difficulty, you are struggling in the fire, I would just welcome you to come forward and, and let your fellow laborers pray for you. I want to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for us all. So I'll just welcome you now. If there's a trial that you are undergoing and you need prayer, come forward and we would like to pray for you.
is glorious to hear. Elect exiles, that's plural. There's many of us. And there is a joy of being able to link arms in the midst of the fire to care for one another, carry one another's burdens. So there's a joy to pray for one another. That is what being the church is all about. So it is it's such a joy to see that. Here's, here's my concluding prayer to us, is that we would walk in this reality, that we would see the encouragement that the Holy Spirit gives us in First Peter, and that we would be reminded that we have an inheritance that is kept by God, and church, he keeps you all the while. And so here, here's, here's the prayer, that we would be able to echo what the Apostle Paul states in Philippians 3. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it. Something that awaits us, church. Or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus Christ has made it my own. He's purchased it and acquired it for us. So we strive for something that's been acquired. It's glorious. Let me just pray for us as we go out from here. Lord, we thank you that we sit here today in 2021 with all that we're being inundated with, reminded acutely of good news that's already been acquired, of an inheritance that's already been purchased, of a living hope that we can walk in because you are alive and living. God, what glorious news this is. Lord, so I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would remind them of this truth. And not only remind them, but that they would experience it in the midst of the fire. Lord, that you, they would feel your nearness, that they would feel, as Peter prays, grace and peace being multiplied to them in the midst of the fire. And that they would have an earnest desire to strive godliness, for holiness, always looking ahead. As Stephen, while he was being stoned to death, looked up and saw the glory of God, Lord, that we in the midst of the fire would look and see you and say, it's worth it. Lord, do this for us. For it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be blessed, church. Go and make disciples.